All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm here today with Dave Evans. Dave is the co-founder and CEO of digital manufacturing ecosystem company, Fictive. Since its founding in 2013, Fictive has manufactured more than 18 million parts for early stage companies and large enterprises alike driving innovation with agility from prototype to production and ensuring supply chain predictability and success for customers in industries from automotive and robotics to healthcare and aerospace. So Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So share with us some of your background and what made you start Fictive to begin with. Yeah, for sure. So I'm uh, your classic engineer of solve your own problems. I studied mechanical engineering, mechatronics, specifically mechanical electrical systems, and I'm an auto guy. So I started my career off at Ford building infotainment systems or dashboards of cars. And what we were trying to do there was basically put consumer electronics into vehicles. You know, put your iPhone, iPad, these things into the a buck. The, the dashboard of a car. And the challenge that we really ran into at Ford, which is still a problem today, is it's around development cycles. A vehicle can take four to six years to build a new platform. Meanwhile, you're going to get a new consumer device every six to nine months. And so you're going to get 12 iterations of consumer device in the time it takes to launch one vehicle. So when you get in your plane, you land, you go rent that Mustang as you're driving around the, on the one in California, wind's blowing in your hair, and you go to use the touchscreen and it's horrible or it feels 10 years old, it's because it is. And so it was from a lot of my experience at Ford saying, how do you increase the speed to build new products? And what are the barriers to developing that? And the thesis, which was developed at Ford, which we're working on for now almost 10 years uh, at Fictive, was if you could speed up the development cycles, you could reduce risk for getting new products to market, and you actually unlock innovation for many companies to, to do that. And so we, we built the company on this premise of how do you build hardware, physical goods, products at the speed of software? We're based in Silicon Valley. Don't let all the software folks like a Facebook or a Amazon or a Dropbox have all the fun. We wanted to build tools for mechanical engineers and physical product companies to, to build products faster. So if you fast forward to today, that's what we've built. We built a system to simplify sourcing and built really this operating system, this digital operating system probably build custom mechanical parts. And so we find factories, machines, which are idle or have extra capacity all over the world. And we're allowing engineers and supply chain teams to order custom mechanical components from all of these idle machines all over the place. So we don't own a factory. I don't have an injection molding machine. I don't have a sheet metal press. I don't have a CNC machine, but we are allowing an engineer, say at a Honeywell, to order parts 
from these idle machines through all this digital software that we've done. And like you said, Lisa, it's actually 20 million parts now. I think since we published that, it's up. We built 20 million parts through this network. It's not our first rodeo. And I think we are changing the way that companies think about bringing products to market and really driving agility into their supply chain. And I like to think we're just in day one of that journey because it feels like the work we could do, like we just got started. At the beginning, you were talking about driving that car and the wind flying in your hair. Sorry, I'm still there. Uh, <laughs> and then going to that touch screen that's 10 years old. So in that kind of example, what would it look like working with Fictive? Who would yeah. you be working with and how would you get that technology into that? Let's talk about a classic supply chain product run. So when I was at Ford, you kind of had three options for how you would make this product. So I'm an engineer working on this dashboard and I want, I designed something up in CAD and now I want to get it physically made. I have a new way to say mount a, uh, an iPhone 11 into the car and I want to design or prototype this in. So your options are threefold. One, I could use my internal resources. So we had an internal machine shop, prototyping lab, a bunch of equipment at Ford. So I could use that. The second option is I could go to my tier one supply base. So people that build components for production and do that, and there's trade-offs there. And the third option, which a lot of people do, is you build a network yourself. You have Lisa's machine shop that's in Detroit, or I have Jennifer's machine shop in Wisconsin, or I have Jungming that's over in Vietnam or China. And I have all these relationships and you build this network. And so in a traditional way, I'd go out, I'd get RFQs, I'd wait for those RFQs to come back. I'd award the work to a supplier. The supplier would make it and they would ship to me. And typically at Ford, that took me eight, maybe 10 weeks to go through that process every time I wanted to build one of these new dashboards. And to me, that was way too slow because I knew it only took two hours to make my part on the machine. So what happened to the seven weeks, six days, and 22 hours between the two hours of making it in there? And it's a whole bunch of latency that happens. It's time of say, hey, Lisa, I need a quote. And you're busy running this machine shop in Detroit, building parts on the factory floor, dealing with something. So that quote takes a week or two weeks to get back to me. But then I award you the work and I get put in a queue because you have all these other orders that are ahead of mine because you want to keep your machine running all the time. So it's like this artificial queue to get on there. And then the part comes off of it and then it's waiting for a quality inspector to actually look at it. And then now it actually has to get shipped to me. So all of this is kind of downtime. So if you fast forward and say, how do we do this at Fictive? That quote is happens in a minute. So you use our online software, you're uploading that CAD file and you are getting instant pricing and DFM, design for manufacturing feedback, right away on that, like within a minute. You're then able to collaborate with your purchasing manager teams using our software on any changes that are needed. And you can purchase that just like you would buy on Amazon, like an e-commerce-like experience for buying that custom mechanical component. From there, the part actually gets scheduled to an idle machine that's gonna make it like same day. So I know that Lisa's machines that's on Fictive's network is completely at capacity. But Jennifer's machines that's in Wisconsin are open and available today. And that part gets routed to Jennifer and it goes on the machine, gets made, comes off the machine tomorrow. 
gets inspected by our digital QMS quality management system. We actually have physical fictive people looking at those parts, both digitally and sometimes in the factory. And then it gets shipped back to you in a matter of say two or three days. So you take a process that was eight weeks at Ford and we've compressed that down to two, three, four days. Think about how many cycles you can go through in that iteration, all to let your hair flow better using the dashboard <laughs> driving down the one. And to put it in terms that I can understand and yeah. simpler term is that if I have a project that I need some market research done or something, and I go to Upwork and I put on a job of exactly what I'm looking for, data mining for this list of people, and then within three to four minutes. Usually within the first hour, I have about 40 people that have subscribed to that. And then I can check them out. I can read their reviews and then I can narrow it down and pick the one that I'm going to work with. So it go. sounds that from a product basis, that's pretty similar that you're putting it out there. And then people are saying, hey, pick me. I have the capacity and this is what I can do. And then you can check them out. So oh, is that close? Very close. And your other analogy people use is it's like Uber. You get out of the airport, you could go stand in the taxi line. And are there taxis there? Maybe there aren't taxis because they're busy. Maybe the queue is 100 people long and you're going to wait because you just got to IMTS or you just got to CES and you're going to just wait in that line for forever. But in Uber, you get off the plane, you connect your phone and you say, give me a car. It shows up in five minutes and Uber is doing all the quality for you. Oh, do you want a black car? Okay, you can do that. Oh, do you want an Uber X? You can do that. It's a five-star rating. They kick people off, manage all those network of drivers. All that's done for you so you have a better riding experience compared to you get in a taxi and there's no accountability. You don't know how long you're going to wait. So really it's the station or Upwork if people have used that for the manufacturing world. Because what we know is like, Lisa's machine shop or Jennifer's or whoever, it's out there. Like there's enough capacity in the world. It's actually more how do you find it, vet it, manage it, and do that in a digital way. And let's get away from email. Let's get away from PowerPoint. Let's get away from Excel docs required to launch products. We want to build better digital tools to reimagine how manufacturing is done. One And just looking at manufacturing completely differently because we're so in this realm of that, of course, it's going to take eight to 12 weeks to get apart because of everything that you explained before. But you're also giving people opportunities. Like you said, it goes in a queue. Number one, you don't know if that purchasing agent is on vacation and if they're ever going to get the quote and get back to you in a couple of weeks. So it brings you that immediate gratification that yeah. you have people that are jumping on that. So how do you build the relationships with those manufacturers to, to deliver these 18 million parts? Like how, yeah. what's the process that you go through for that? What I want you to think about is that we are essentially your bolt on supply chain team. So just as your supply chain team has global supply chain managers, quality engineers, project managers, I have that same structure here. It's just my people aren't using PowerPoints and emails and spreadsheets. They're using like Silicon Valley software tools to manage all these relationships. So we inspect the factory not once a year or once a quarter, like we did at Ford or most places. 
Every single day, we have data coming out of our 250 manufacturing partners on what their quality is, their acceptance rating, any type of defects that happen, and all of that's happening through our digital QMS. Then on top of there, we actually have supply quality engineers that are boots on the ground in China, in India, in the US, that are inspecting these factories physically for you as well. So this is all to give you confidence that when you're ordering something from Fictive, we have the highest quality, not just managed through a system like software, but managed through world-class experts. I call them our SWAT team. That's like diving in and actually inspecting it for you. And what that does is it gives you leverage. Because imagine if you're a small product company, you have an idea, you don't have supply quality engineers, TPMs, project managers, you don't have any of that stuff. Or maybe you're a big company and you do, but your network's too large. We act as that bolt-on supply chain for you. So you have peace of mind that you're going to get the highest quality product every time. And that's what we've that's how we've been able to produce these 20 million parts is by building this combination of software plus humans really to drive best-in-class automation. And the other thing that comes to mind, though, again, you're working with a with manufacturing that is slow to change. So for and I'm thinking about for people listening to the podcast who may be stuck in that as well as just having that conversation. So when you're approaching different people to get in the fictive supplier chain so that they can be included in those quotes and in that field of people. How do you explain it to them and yeah. the benefits that that open up? Again, ch completely changing that mindset of how they've worked before through the whole quote process and everything. Yeah, generally, I think this will probably resonate to everybody that's listening here. If you run a factory, a, a service bureau, a CNC machine shop, any of these, most of those owners or operators didn't start the business because they love generating quotes, PDFs, talking about design for many. Most of them did it because they love making physical parts. They love running the factory, working with machines, doing all that creative work. But what happens is in order to run a successful service bureau or business, there's all this upfront administrative work that you have to do. Talk to any machine shop owner and say, how much do you like chasing down past due invoices? Do you know how many hands raised? This many, <laughs> zero. How many times, what's your percentage of things that you quote versus you win? Most is about 20%. Meaning so for every 10 quotes that you send out, only two of them are you gonna get awarded. So what about those other eight? That is lost productivity for you. So when you work with Effective, what we're doing is all that front office work for you. And we're basically like money on a tree that's just you can pull down as much as you want. So you have this guaranteed revenue stream to your factory that is pre-vetted work, standardized work orders, standardized payment terms, improved cash flow, and you have consistency of revenue, meaning if you work with a customer, they'll make a product and then they go away because they're shipping it and selling it and whatever. We will always be making products because we're consolidating all this demand up front from many different industries. And so what we see is that we really are a strategic partner, not just a customer, but a partner 
for these manufacturing part plants and service bureaus, machine shops. And that it's kind of those values of it's predictable revenue. It's a strategic partner in software development. And then it's also around payment terms and these. Are there some industries that work that this works better for, or what areas do you really specialize in and find that you're hitting these home runs with? I think that for complex mechanical components is where we win the most. Look, if you're ordering a block with four holes in it. You probably don't need a lot of sourcing expertise to go get a block with four holes. You don't need a lot of people. A lot of people can make a block with four holes. There's avenues to do that. But if you have tight tolerance, complex mechanical parts, there's a lot of back and forth in how you quote it, how you do design for manufacturing feedback, the invoicing around it, how you do reorders, like all this complexity that happens. And that's really where our digital systems shine, both for the customer, so someone at Ford or Honeywell, but then also for the manufacturing partner, the guy or gal that's producing. And that's really where I think that in the ecosystem of custom mechanical manufacturing, the complex parts is really where we shine. And I think about product prototypes and then those complex. So do you do anything or do your suppliers do anything with like 3D printing and those that type of development or is it more machine shop? We do pretty much all custom mechanicals. So machining is a big portion of it. 3D printing and additive is another huge portion of it. Injection molding is, is probably the fastest growing, highest utilization for us because of just all the constraints in that market today. So I'd say those are probably the three big ones, but then there's a kind of a long tail of other services from there. And so, again, when we're starting to change the conversation and look at how manufacturing is just different today and really evolving with Mm -hmm. all of this new technology, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you're still seeing manufacturers make? And what are some ways that they can take a look at those mistakes and maybe improve their profit. Listen, we are in the most challenging period for supply chain in the last, I don't know, 20 years, 50 years, 100, like how far do you want to go back? When you take global trade wars between US and China with a ongoing pandemic, with a war in Europe, with then Suez Canal, and now we're talking about different diseases that are coming up even beyond COVID. It's like, All of these are causing disruptions in supply chain and everybody's hurting on the demand side and the supply. And so we see the common pitfalls that I see when I talk about simplifying sourcing, it's this whole process of how do you plan what you need? How do you source it? How do you make it? How do you deliver it? And how do you ensure the quality on it? Those kind of five things, that's what sourcing is. And then we see two people get, we get, See folks get hung up on this idea of agility and resiliency. So get out your notepad now because you're listening. Agility is the ability to sense and respond. So basically like in your supply chain, if you have agility, you're able to see that something is going to mess up and respond to it quickly. That is so I would ask you, go rate your supply chain on how good is your agility, the ability to sense something and when that happens, respond to it. Resiliency then is the ability to adapt to change. So you can have a very agile supply chain, meaning you can sense things will happen. But if you don't have resiliency, meaning once when you've sensed it, 
are you actually going to go make a change? So, hey, I know a global trade war is going to happen with China. Okay, that would mean, okay, you got agility. But do you have a backup plan? That would be your resiliency to move things out of China, if that's the case. Or I'll take another one. We know that hurricane season is coming up in the Florida region. And so, great, I have agility that I can sense it and I can respond. But you have resiliency that you can move production out of the southeast of the U.S. when that happens. What's your resiliency plan? And so this is what we're talking with a lot of companies today, both factories as well as the companies, the demand side, OEMs, to say, how much agility and resiliency do you really have in your factory? If you're a factory and you're listening to this and you run that, let's talk about labor shortage. That's a big one we always hear. What are your indicators of how much agility do you have around your hiring plans, around retention, how you find talent? But if that doesn't work out, what's your resiliency plans? How are you going to adopt and change to a new hiring strategy? Is it around training? Is it culture? Is it wage increases? Is it labor practices? These are all plans that I would implore everybody listening of what's your agility and what's your resiliency plan in your supply chain today. And I would go bolster those if you're not already. Awesome. So if you had, we talked about that agility and resiliency, any other tips that you find helpful or you have worked with your clients with in manufacturing? Yeah, we'll probably get to this because we, whenever we connect, Lisa, we talk about culture a lot. Yeah. I think that culture is a huge driver of innovation. And just, you can talk about employee morale. There's many different aspects of culture that we can dive into. But I think often in manufacturing, it's overlooked that people want to talk about productivity. They don't want to talk about throughput. It's like, Folks that love manufacturing love the machine of manufacturing, of, of implementing processes and Six Sigma and Lean and all these ways to drive efficiency. But I think one of the things that is overlooked a lot is what's the culture of your organization? How are you retaining talent? How are you driving morale and productivity? And I would actually push for more people to think about culture as a strategic lever of growth. If you ask why are why have we been able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars? We have over 300 people operating in three different countries. Like, why have we been able to do that effective? I'd say it's culture, like hands down. That is our one of our largest strategic advantages. And I think that more companies can look at culture not as a necessity or something that you should do, but really as a strategic lever of growth. I push a lot of manufacturing companies to think about that. And so what is it about you with that focus on culture? What are some of the things that you do that, that keep people with you in when we're going through such a labor shortage right now and it's hard to find people and it doesn't sound like you have a, that issue. So what are some of the things that you specifically are doing to create those relationships and help that to happen? Usually when I, when I talk about culture, especially in the manufacturing world, People get squeamish and it's always yeah. the fuzzy, the fuzzy thing. What we do is I teach culture as a product or I teach culture as your factory. Just like you break down the process 
for how you would launch a new product to market. And you talk about what's the demand? What did my customer need? What's the requirements of it? How am I going to build it? Or just like in a factory, you would do an end-to-end walkthrough of how a part goes from a raw good to make it, to qualify it, to ship it. You have to do the same thing for culture. You have to break down what is our culture? What's our mission that we stand for? We talk a lot about this concept of health at Fictive, that healthy teams win over smart teams. Meaning most teams like to talk about how smart they are. I have the best finance team. Look how good my sales team is. Look, I have hired PhDs and the best engineers in the world. That's smarts. And most organizations all strive to have the smartest company they could ever have. What I would argue is that smart is table stakes, meaning like every organization wants to have the best people and probably think that they do. What organizations don't spend enough time on is what is the health of the organization? And we actually measure our health in five ways. Healthy organizations have low politics, low confusion of what to do, who needs to do what. They have high morale. People are excited to come to work every day. High productivity. Folks know what to do, how to be successful, how to advance, and low turnover. That attrition is low. And so if you sit here as an owner or manager, and every day you're obsessing of like, how healthy is my organization? Meaning, is my morale high? Is my productivity high? Is my turnover low? And you're doing this, you're actually creating a strategic advantage for your company. And effective, we actually measure this. Like we take those five things, we do a quarterly survey on it, we look at all the data, and it's like, oh, we're really low here. There's high confusion in the org. We have all these new people. They don't know what to work on, or maybe they thought their role was this, and it actually was this, or they thought we were doing X, but we're actually doing Y. If people are confused, you can have the smartest, best individual in the world, but if they don't have clarity on how to be successful, or they're not productive, you're screwed. Like you're not gonna, you're not gonna win. And so I would say that's one element is like health over smarts that we really push for. And I think is a framework other companies could leverage as well. And I think that there's the the reminder that your company culture took a long time to build and it is not changing overnight. So if you have a highly political environment, just it's one conversation at a time and addressing that elephant in the room that we we're looking at changing and being consistent. In my programs, I talk about that. Choose one thing, get really good at it because for the most part, you keep trying all these things and your employees don't trust you because you give it two weeks, it doesn't work and you stop doing it. So where you have the advantage that's always been at the forefront of how you have built Fictive for a more established um, manufacturer where maybe these are still looked at soft and fuzzy and not the bottom line, bottom dollar impacting things to create that healthy work environment. It is. It's one interaction at a time. I would say for those, I was just talking to a CEO that just moved from a massive 5,000 person company and she just became the CEO of a 300 person company. And it was that, it's a 25 year old business comes in and it's really challenging. And I said, hey, Susan, like how, congratulations on your new CEO role. What's the culture like or how are you shifting it? And what I love that she said is that it's one step at a time and you got to lead by example. 
And so we, I just published a post on our Forbes column on this, of the concept of a Gemba walk. So for anyone that knows lean manufacturing, you follow the Six Sigma. Gemba is this idea where management walks the factory floor and you do it not to inspect or performance manage your people, but to get feedback back and forth between the factory worker, a line worker that's assembling things, running the machine, with where strategy and management is, where you have to have trust and this conversation back and forth. And so related to culture, what Susan was saying is like, look, my office that was in the corner is now in the middle of the factory floor. And I sit there with everyone every day. And so I'm not the CEO up here. I'm down on the floor with them. The conversation of the feedback box that got put in the lunchroom and was there now actually happens because I'm side by side with them and it's a conversation. They know that I have an altitude that I can see that they can't because of the position. And I know that they are seeing things, assembling things that I never could as well. And there is trust and respect between each of those roles that each person has valuable insights that together you can do. And so I was like, oh my God, Susan's opening my whole world. And she was basically turning over this rock one stone at a time of just building trust and respect, doing these Gemba walks the whole time. And I said, wow, I think a lot of other leaders would really resonate with you, Susan, on, on how that's done. And so re-emphasizing this idea of a Gemba walk where you go to where the work happens, you have to have trust and respect. And that's how you can start to change a culture that's decades old, where maybe you don't have the advantage of a fictive where you had a clean slate 10 years ago to build something from the ground up. Yeah. Wow. That is definitely powerful and something that's showing that it can be done, but it starts at the top. It's not something you're going to pawn off on HR. It's not yet another initiative, but it's you getting rid of your corner office and taking it to the shop floor. And just even as much as knowing your employees' names, greeting them personally, knowing a little something about them can make a huge difference because we think that this is common sense, but because there's so few companies that actually operate like that, it's going to be really tough for your employees to go somewhere else because you've trained them to what a, a good workforce, a r- good work environment really looks like. Yeah. If this costs the organization nothing, you moving your office from that corner to there didn't cost your bottom line a single dollar. And people are fast to move to pay raises and this to drive that, that turnover, that attrition, when really it's, man, if you just knew everybody's name where you treated people as humans with respect and compassion, that doesn't cost you anything. It's just your time. And I think that that's why culture is a strategic driver for your business. It's not a fuzzy thing. It's something that really can turn your organization around. Yeah. Oh, wow. We have covered a lot in our time together. So if somebody did want to get a hold of you and continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so look, if you're interested in Fictive's business model, what we do, how we can help accelerate your product development or maybe help drive revenue if you own a a factory, go to Fictive.com, F-I-C-T-I-V.com, and you can learn more and go there. If you want to reach out to me, I love talking about culture, running organizations, how to scale businesses, technology, supply chain, any of that. LinkedIn's the best way to find me. And so just being Evans, pretty easy to 
to Google and look for a smiling, smiling guy that wants to talk about supply chain. Happy to chat. All right, Dave, again, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been great having you here. Yeah, thanks so much, Lisa. And I always love these chats. So looking forward to the next one. Sounds good. All right. I am Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.